Good morning, good afternoon to everyone wherever you are in the world. It's Mark, as you know, and today we have really special guests. So if you just tuned in by mistake, please do not leave the recording. And yeah, just stay because we'll have um, an hour of an amazing conversation, hopefully with really two knowledgeable guests we have with us today. So we have Chris Hurawe, who whose pronouns are he, him, and Sama Seger, uh, whose pronouns are she, her, and they are both um, founders of the organization Aotearoa Liberation League. Welcome. Tēnā Mark. Thank you. Kia ora Hi, everyone. So, um, well, basically this podcast is going to be about many different topics as are the ones from the series Global Advocates. But today in particular, we'll be talking a lot about animal liberation um, because this is a in- personal interest of mine as a vegan of over five years. Not that I'm too uh, fussy about how long I've been vegan or anything like that, just to give you a bit of context. Um, But anyway, veganism and animal liberation movements have been on the rise for the last decade. And the rights of animals are increasingly considered in institutions and in society globally. Um, I have seen the ideology political stance change a lot over time. At the start, it came from a very wide perspective that didn't want to take into account other dimensions, such as the human rights impact of plant-based foods that were trendy, such as uh, the origins of quinoa and avocados who were um, leaving indigenous peoples in Latin America without uh, their most basic food sources um, when they were transported over to the global north for consumption, just to give an example. But then as I grew older, I understood that essentially different forms of oppression are connected, animal rights, racism, imperialism, gender politics, ableism, etc. And I also realized that veganism isn't a new phenomenon at all, or that it didn't originate in the West, like we've been often told by these uh, white vegan gurus. But in the country, these notions of nonviolence towards fellow animals have been cultivated across centuries in many indigenous um, cultures around the world. So it's really amazing to see collectives like yours emerge all these um, struggles of anti-oppression, including veganism, decolonizing, and prison abolition, and much more. So first of all, if that's okay, I would love for you to talk about what you do with um, your organization, Aotearoa Liberation League. Um, firstly, thank you for saying all those very kind things about um, our work uh, and for a good summary of, of a lot of the things that we're passionate about. Uh, so our work with Aotearoa Liberation League is at the moment uh, primarily um, being used as a media platform for alternative views to, I guess you could say, mainstream media. Um, And it's about bringing radical conversations to the public in a really simple and accessible way. Uh, You know, a lot of these conversations around decolonization, animal rights, uh, total liberation remain in quite academic spaces, um, which are quite exclusive. But these are ideas that, you know, everyone should be talking about. Uh, This is a very important conversation that involves everyone. Um, So, yeah, that's what we try and do with all. And we are focused on um, talking about nonviolence towards all living creatures, uh, including animals. And so that's another thing that sort of sets us apart is that we are uh, interested in social justice issues, but we are including animals as being part of that discussion um, and sort of positioning veganism where it should be, in our opinion, which is, you know, a serious justice movement that deserves the time and space. 
Mm, yeah, you know, these issues are hard to connect with. Um, so we're all about making um, accessible information, um, shareable social media content. Uh, a lot of these things, you know, stay in the academic space. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of these things stay in the academic space or, you know, um, they're not really accessible for a lot of people. But learning the ins and outs help people to connect all of these various forms of oppression. Um, and moving forward into the future, especially with my own activism journey, we can't be looking at our, issue, at our issues in isolation. You know, everything is connected. Um, and so really um, making this information accessible to people um, is what we're passionate about and something we're focusing on at Aotearoa Liberation League because, um, yeah, if we don't have an informed public, then our democracy uh, is exploited and um, used for nefarious things um, like uh, conspiracy theorists and things like that. There's so much information out there and the right in particular um, are getting quite smart in terms of their organization and advocacy. And so we have to be doing that ourselves, um, speaking to our people, building bridges as much as possible um, and communicating these quite broad and often philosophical academic um, conversations into something uh, attainable for the general public. Yeah, and I just want to pick up on that point um, on, on the right. You know, the right are quite united often despite their differences and that's something that we often fail to do. You know, I hate to use these terms right and left, but generally speaking, um, us on the left tend to um, clash with each other over different, you know, cultural aspects. And what we are really passionate about is all of us actually uniting because that's what it's going to take to make some real change. And just to pick a few things that we can all agree on um, and go after them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, why do you think that people on the left um, especially I mean, social justice movements that are not necessarily connected to veganism are so reluctant to see animals as um, victims of, of also a systemic oppression, which is speciesism. And for those who don't know, that is the discrimination and in consequence, the use and exploitation of um, animals because of their difference in species. Essentially, it's based in an idea of like human supremacy over other species. But why is that going back to my question that um, in your opinion, makes it so hard for other people to relate to animals as political subjects? It's deep. Where to begin? Um, mm. ooh, do you want to start on this one? Sure. I mean, you know, at a systemic level, I realised through my studies that animals are erased from the conversation. You know, I studied a really wide variety of things, law, philosophy, media, um, a little bit of a few other things. And Nowhere across any of these things did the question of animals come up, you know, even though our society is built off the back of animals. You know, this is not just some small um, issue. This is, you know, everything, you know, especially in Aotearoa, our economy is run off the back of animals. So the fact that it didn't even come, come up in conversations around ethics or um, anything that I, you, that I studied um, is quite telling. And then, you know, outside of academic, the academic space, in the media, the conversation is erased as well. So, so at a systemic level, the conversation is erased um, in quite a deliberate way because, you know, in these institutions, we know, like in our academic spaces, for example, there are big industries in those spaces, you know. So they very much gear what research is focused on and 
and what people's ideas, you know, even in terms of philosophers that we study, they're often, you know, Western philosophers, for example, um, and they're not, you know, the eco-feminist philosophers that I discovered by myself, you know, not so much through the help of um, the readings that I was given, but I did end up discovering some really amazing academics who actually have been talking about animals um, in the context of uh, total liberation and, and justice uh, and social justice, um, but they aren't included a lot of times, you know, and they themselves are silenced. You So, so it is um, systematically um, erased like that, but as, at the same time, there is a psychological thing going on there. What we're asking people to consider is something that's really dark and something that most people have contributed to in their own lives. So we're asking them to reflect on themselves and the ways that they may have contributed towards a really big oppression. And that's a very difficult thing to ask of people. Yeah, and eating animals, you could say, uh, because of our disconnect from nature, in many instances, for a lot of people, the only way that they can actually engage with some type of interaction with nature is sometimes to eat it, like in the form of meat. You know, people think eating meat, uh, you know, brings you into some higher connection with nature compared with something like a, a quinoa oat or like some kind of whole grain that they generally don't know about. You know, it's like foreign foods to a lot of people, a lot of these whole grain foods. Um, and so they, they think eating animals is natural, you know, it's like their ancestors, they're going back to older, more simpler times. And of course, uh, they'll see veganism as the very extreme of something. And so they'll say, oh, you can, you can still consume animal products, but we have to change the production. Um, and so, yeah, it's hard for people to connect because it's so normalized and ingrained in our society and something that pretty much all of us um, are pretty much okay with. And of course, that's because of all the propaganda and industry input persuading us in a certain direction. So, um, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do in terms of changing the dialogue. But uh, I think the more you look at it, the more you realize that consuming plant-based foods is more sustainable, less pollution. So, of course, less harm to um, third world countries who are exploited you know, for the production of food. You know, If we all move towards plant-based foods or require less land, meaning um, less, um, you know, colonization and imperialism on other countries because we'd all be able to maintain our food systems in our own countries if we weren't so land hungry for producing animal agriculture. Um, so, you know, everything's tied in, of course, and um, the more you help connect, um, you know, non-vegans gently with each thread, which, of course, weaves into a massive blanket that covers all of us. Um, yeah, we just need to help people make those um, those steps to build that bigger picture. Um. It's like the peak of capitalism, you know, being so alienated from these things that we're consuming um, that we actually don't really even see the animal when we consume um, the, their products often. Um, and, you know, when you, when you have a chair and you're alienated from the tree that the chair came from, that's one thing, and that's awful in itself because that tree was a home for animals. Um, but when you're actually eating an animal, being alienated from the process of slaughtering them takes that alienation to a much darker uh, place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually um, a while back I learned about how um, some people suggest that the origin of capitalism was when we started counting animals as per head, 
for heads of, of cattle. And that's where cap from from like head in Latin capitas um, would become capitalism. Um, so I don't know if you, you're familiar with that, but that uh, personally that blew my mind that there's such a connection between um, seeing well the objectification of of non-human animals and the the system that we live in, which is way beyond just an economic system, but also um, a cultural system at this point, since we since the, the vast majority of the global north at least follow it such with such blind eyes um, and would completely want to repel anything that um, puts it in in jeopardy. Um, yeah, um, but it would be so interesting to know how you um, kind of envision anti-oppression and total liberation um, due to your context and also because of a lot of people who follow this podcast who might not necessarily be aware um, of this terminology or familiar with it. Oof. Well, I mean, yeah, it's just about having values and being consistent with them. You know, you mentioned speciesism before, and, you know, there's things like otherization of you know, putting different people or different animals, different things in different categories and treating them differently uh, based on those categories. And I, I guess, you know, anti-oppression and total liberation for me is just about applying the ethics and the, the views that I have, the principles that I have as consistently as possible. And, you know, of course, that's really, really hard to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's really, really hard to do. And, you know, most of us, including myself, are hypocrites on most things. You know, I would call myself a total liberationist and, of course, like a vegan who is as nonviolent as possible. But, of course, it's, it's hard to get away from these things completely. And we're all just trying to do the best that we can. Um, but for me, it's, it's having a view of justice that's um, able to be, be replicated a, and applicable to as many things as possible. At its heart, you know, col colonialism and these oppressive systems, they are sort of the opposite of veganism and they are op the, so the opposite of a values-based society. It's, it's more based on ideas, you know, of utilitarianism, of the ends justify the means. And, you know, these ideas of the ends justify the means, you'll notice that it's a very common theme in colonial structures that often justify violence and destruction um, under this idea that it's for a greater good. And so we think, you know, what's antithetical to that is actually saying we reject that type of thinking and we go for a values-based way of living um, where the values don't change, you know, and, and we have a, a guiding system and only that I think will liberate humanity and to leave animals out of that you know it's breaking our moral compass because you know the empathy is a muscle that you practice with your brain and if we're teaching our children that you can turn that muscle off sometimes um that's going to carry on and they're going to do that for other things you know things aren't neatly categorized in our brains as um we make out like that you know that's such such great points thank you for sharing that and it's hopefully it will inspire our audience as much as it has inspired me um it's really powerful to hear how committed you are and um something that i heard you mention chris is that you're trying to be as nonviolent as possible which i also think is a something really important to put the focus on for a bit um and especially in like 
the vegan movement um, in Europe. I've seen a lot of um, white veganism in a very specific way, which um, is that people were policing each other to see how vegan they were or how much they were avoiding animal suffering. And it's kind of like this purity politics and who is more, instead of just looking at trying to do the least harm, like you mentioned, which is what veganism is really all about, uh, taking the opportunities you have, the availability of resources and systems you have and trying to make the best of it with what you've got. Um, for example, I was speaking to some indigenous people in, in Greenland, in Kalalit Nunat, and they were saying that um, uh, being vegan for them, it involves um, consuming animal products because any plant-based products or the majority of plant-based products have to be shipped from uh, Denmark. So they will be very, very expensive, so not accessible uh, to them. And um, they continue practicing their traditional hunting uh, practices, um, which are the, the basis of sus substance uh, for their food and yeah, suggesting that they could be 100% plant-based instead of 100% vegan in the way that I've explained and introduced would be, again, like a colonizing white veganism um, idea, if that makes sense. So yeah, thanks for noting that. Yeah, well, I, well, first off, it breaks my heart having vegans police other vegans. And, you know, I know from my own experience, I've been there, you know, when you first start out with veganism, you hold, well, you tend to hold yourself to quite a high standard in terms of things that you're not going to contribute to, you know, because when you go vegan, the whole world is flipped upside down, essentially. And you start to understand the degree of horror and suffering involved in, you know, our exploitation of animals. And you want to personally distance yourself from that as much as possible. Um, you, don't, you know, when I went vegan, um, I went as far as I could to get myself away from uh, animal products as much as possible. Because I, I just, it scared me that I was contributing to such a horrific thing in our society. Uh, and then so you start applying that desire within yourself and the standards you have yourself for other people. Um, but, you know, we all need to be self-aware and uh, understanding of other people, of their capacity, of their perspectives. You know, I've always been lucky in my life that I have had access to um, sustainably produced plant-based foods my whole life. Uh, and so it's very easy for me uh, as that individual to make that transition to a plant-based diet for people who don't have that accessibility um, you know even if we just look back at the definition of veganism it's about doing what's practicable for you uh, it's, it's never been about perfectionism and you know of course perfectionism um, is the enemy of good you know so people um, being you know this way about it is not helping us it's not helping the animals it makes us seem you know like a cult or like that we're so restrictive and we're so tight about everything you know um, so I really hope that vegans can chill out a bit more <laughs> and start thinking about ways that we can communicate our message to people and make veganism and nonviolence seem accessible to people who have otherwise usually never thought about these things unless they're actually talking to a vegan. And when we uh, get to a point where we hold an extremely high standard, um, I think it just turns people away. Um, but al although, you know, uh, all of the details within the exploitation of animals deserves attention, um, but the standards that we hold others to in terms of how we fight 
those details um, is something that we need to be aware of. Um, I just want to add to that that, you know, the vast majority of people that we reach through our platform and, and maybe for you as well are people who, for whom plant-based eating is quite accessible, are people who can buy lentils and potatoes and a couple of vegetables from the supermarket. Um, and often I see this problematic thing with people who are not relying on subsistence hunting, using those people to justify their own consumption habits. And I find that problematic for a few reasons. Um, and one of them is that, well, actually, some Indigenous people in those situations still do want to go vegan, for example. Um, and if they're physically unable to as well, then, you know, they have that intention, which for me is the most important thing, is the intention. Um, and they're actually doing more towards vegan than that person themselves. So, I've, I, I, you know, obviously people who are living on subsistence hunting, we're not going to them. We're not telling them to change their lives. They are firstly in the small minority in the world. And secondly, they're not the ones causing all this damage and the systematic oppression of animals. You know, the systematic oppression of animals that we're targeting, that is very much a colonial practice that has infected the world over you know they systematically went around the world and implemented their colonial farms their colonial slaughterhouses their colonial animal experimentation programs all sorts of really gross you know horror movie stuff that was not indigenous people the systems we're targeting are not indigenous systems and the yeah the people who are living on subsistence hunting are not the people that we are talking to mm, but yeah, for those who are living on subsistence hunting, we can still explore these um, conversations and, um, you know, theories around our relationship with animals, animal rights, um, because, um, you know, <laughs> often people will assume that Indigenous people can't go vegan as if, you know, they're incapable of having those sorts of philosophic questions and conversations around changing our relationship with animals um, but of course that's totally not the case um, but yeah it's it's never been about going to um, the Inuit community you know and taking um, their fish off them and changing their diets what we generally talk about is accessible for the vast majority of people um, and yeah it's just it's really sad when you see people appropriating other cultures to justify their own habits yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's the point that you raised is so crucial as well, because the indigenous communities um, of the world are the ones who are protecting the land and are the ones who for centuries have been taking care of the equilibrium of our planet. Um, so to point to point at them um, is very much like out of touch with reality because they're doing the mm. opposite. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's to use like when a privileged person living in the global north with all this wealth of um, choice 
uses Indigenous peoples as an excuse to not um, go vegan in their possibility. Um, it's just another form of, of racism, um, at least to me. So yeah, it's really, really important point you raised. Um, and I was wondering, connecting to this, how do you see veganism traditionally um, being from Indigenous Aotearoa? Um, are these conceptions and perspectives also replicated similarly in other Indigenous communities you're aware of? Mm, do you want to um, elaborate a little bit more on your question? Yeah, um, there are, well, uh, as you say, uh, as you said earlier, and as you often advocate for, there's a lot of um, conceptions of like nonviolence um, in Indigenous cultures and Indigenous belief systems uh, all over the world. Like um, there's Ahimsa um, in some parts of India, uh, for example, which is advocating for that uh, philosophical veganism out of nonviolence for all creatures on Earth. And I was wondering if there's um, something similar um, in in the Maori or in other in other indigenous groups. Mm. So here in Aotearoa, um, I would say veganism uh, is very much a new concept, um, and it's kind of uh, Western manifestation of nonviolence. You know, um, today's generation, the way that we um, uh, you know uh, live by nonviolence. Um, for some, uh, as this path of veganism. Um, oh, sorry, I kind of lost myself. My train of um, thought a little bit there. I was looking at my screen too much, sorry. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult question, Mark. Um, for me, what I see is a lot of alignments and ways to draw connections. And the society that I live in, uh, the culture that dominates my society, uh, is tied up in a lot of what I would say really non-vegan values and also things that really clash with me culturally and clash with my indigeneity, things that are mainstream and things that are normalized in today's society. Uh, and for me, veganism is a way of countering those things that are so normalized in our society. You know, here in Aotearoa, it's, we're, we're a little bit different to other countries. You know, our economy uh, is completely dominated by animal agriculture. Um, our, our greenhouse gas emissions, for example, half of it, uh, just over half, uh, is coming from animal agriculture. Uh, and it's, it's just, a, in terms of for me being Māori and during the colonization of Aotearoa, a lot of our land theft was wrapped up uh, in the establishment of farms. And that's continued on into this current day, the de destabilization of my people uh, to establish colonial farms, which is now the backbone of our economy, uh, to support that system is the complete opposite in terms of um, my worldview and my decolonial perspective in terms of how I want to live and the values that I want to live by. And so my choice to be vegan completely aligns with, with me culturally in terms of my indigeneity uh, because I see my diet and my choices as a vegan as being, uh, you know, counter-cultural uh, to this colonial system that we're living under. If that answers your question, I'm sorry, it's a bit of a ramble. So interesting. Um, I'm not from Aotearoa, I'm from Iraq. I'm Mandane Iraqi and uh, similar to Chris, it's not so much that in our teachings there was, you know, specific uh 
ideas around veganism, as far as I know anyway, because my culture, Mandaean, Mandaeanism is, is a very, very ancient religion that has been quite oppressed over the years by many different powers. Um, they've always been ruled by someone throughout their history. Um, and so we've actually lost a lot of stuff, although we do have our own um, holy book that I can't read because it's in our own language. Um, but what I do know about Mandaeans is that, ah, um, sorry, I was bumping the table if that messed up with the mic. Um, but what I do know about Mandaeans are, is that they really value the water. They think water is sacred. Um, and I mean, if we're going to talk about what animal agriculture is doing to the waterways, it's absolutely trashing the water everywhere around the world. Um, and Mandaeans as well, they just um, very clearly had a very spiritual connection to the environment. And I think that that would have naturally meant a closer con connection to animals. And, you know, just knowing that there wasn't that systematic oppression of animals on such a huge level, you know that the relationship with animals was different. Um, and, you know, in a modern context as well, taking it a little bit deeper, the oppression of animals goes hand in hand with the oppression of my people. You know, we're, we're often likened to animals, you know, and, and we all know this, like you can almost speak to any Iraqi and they'll tell you, oh, yeah, we're treated like animals. The West sees us like animals. We know it instinctively. And so if you follow that thinking and you go a little bit deeper into that and you lean into it, you realize, OK, so the oppression of, of my people is predicated on that category of animal existing. It's predicated on us already agreeing that it's fine to oppress animals. And then anyone that you say, oh, they're like animals automatically they're immediately okay to, to oppress so so i see the the liberation of my people being tied in with the liberation of animals for sure so on that level i think it's compatible mm. thank you so much yeah and the compatibilities you know <clears throat> for tell maori in the maori world uh like the kumara which we know is the sweet potato um, was a really revered, it's tapu, a really sacred plant, a really sacred food. And there's all sorts of um, rituals uh, and, thing, and ceremonies that we have around this plant-based food. And, you know, to see plant-based foods in such reverence and held in such high regard is not something that we see in the, you know, typical Western uh, narrative or culture. Um, that we're all living under. You know, animal agriculture, animal foods is what's prioritized and glorified. Um, but of course, in these in indigenous um, cultures outside of the Western world, um, what you quite often see is them praising um, plant-based foods because it's it's what was what it's what was staples for people, um, and it's what our people lived off of for generations and generations. And so, yeah, these conversations around veganism or a plant-based diet not aligning with um, indigenous cultures, um, I I think sadly is just a way for people to um, try to hold on. Um, to the past to not really take responsibility or accountability for today because you know we live in a changing world and for me my whole thing is that if we if we lived or if we ate with the intentions of our ancestors um, if we had the information in front of us I think if not all of us the majority of us would be switching or moving towards a predominantly plant-based diet uh, because of course these intentions were intentions based around what's sustainable and healthful for future generations. Wow, thank you so much for that. That was 
I learned a lot from from the two of you, so I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering, what is the um, specifically decolonial movement like in Aotearoa, New Zealand, right now? If you can give me a, an insight into that. Sure, sure. Uh, well, ooh, um, it's very exciting. There's a lot of activity in Aotearoa, and I think um, worldwide, um, Maori culture has somewhat of a uh, reputation because you know unlike a lot of other indigenous cultures and countries that have been colonized um, we have a document a founding document it's called Te Tiriti o Waitangi uh, and it, it has set in stone uh, you know <laughs> in writing you know this real common western way of, of deciding ownership of things um, we have a lot of things in our founding documents um, that lean quite favorably to Maori and give us in writing a lot of a lot of tangible rights, which a lot of other cultures sadly don't have. Unfortunately, um, there were two uh, kind of um, I guess you could say there's one original, and then there's an alternative version of Te Tiriti or Waitangi. Um, they were translated differently. One is in Te Reo Maori, our native language, uh, and one is in uh, Te Reo Pākehā English. And there are, there are differences in the translation. So there's been differences in the interpretation of Te Tiriti o Waitangi and of the tangible rights that are within them. And you know, these differences in, in translations have been used by the Crown to create laws, confiscate land. Uh, but for a long time, um, we've had somewhat a bit of a resurgence of legal action um, in terms of giving acknowledgements to this original founding document. And so we're seeing things like um, settlements between um, Maori iwi, you know, Maori tribes, uh, with the government for portions of land or money um, in, in, in terms of a sort of reparation uh, for colonial crimes of the past. And uh, it's got a long way to go. It's definitely not perfect. On average, it's about 1% of the value of land that gets returned to Māori people. About 1% on average is what gets returned through these reparations. So there's a long, long, long way to go. Um, but 1% is a lot more than what other uh, countries and cultures have been able to get. Um, and uh, yeah, we're all, we're very proud of our culture here in Aotearoa. Māori, we're very proud and um, we're seeing a lot of things starting to come up. Te Reo Māori, our language being taught in schools, uh, Māori history is going to be coming into schools as well. You know, previously we were just teaching, you know, the typical colonial history, uh, French and English to all of our students. But but um, within the next few years, we'll have the introduction of actual history being taught in our schools and the colonial history of this country. You know, kids are actually going to be learning about colonization. Uh, and so, of course, in a, in quite a racist country, as you'd understand with these two Kind of opposing energies uh having that education in schools is going to help illuminate the situation for a lot of our youth a lot of our young people and so hopefully after that's you know been going on for a bit we're going to have a different generation coming through um but also uh you know there's a lot to say on this um the te reo maori our, our language revitalization movement is is really gaining speed um probably around 20 or 30 or so years ago, the first Māori um, early childhood um, was set up. Uh, and so we now have this generation of 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds who have te reo Māori as their first language 
And this is a language that was taken away from us during colonization. It's something we're slowly regaining. Um, but so we have, of course, the land back movement, the revitalization of our language, um, and some legal and government um, pathways for Māori to engage with mainstream decision making. So, um, yeah, things are looking pretty good in Aotearoa. Obviously, there's lots to do. Um, but I think there are a lot of things we can achieve here that will hopefully set a precedent for Indigenous cultures across the world. And it gives me hope, you know, for other countries, you know, in the global south, because what we really need, and I think will be the solution for all of us, is for Indigenous countries, for Indigenous communities in these colonizer countries to rise up and take their power back and then hopefully change those countries from within um, and on and that's I think is our biggest hope to end the oppression of the global south you know and that's why we need to stand together as indigenous people black people um, all around the world thank you for that that was a really exciting prospect in Aotearoa so I'm, I'm really happy to learn about that and I totally agree um, that, yeah, it's, that that power will lie in unity. And I think especially thanks to the to, to some of the tools that are emerging these days, such as TikTok and other like platforms connected to the Internet, a lot of young generations of Indigenous people are becoming more and more aware of uh, both their history and um, kind of the the conditions underlying to the state because of those past and sometimes even ongoing events. So I think we will definitely see um, some more kind of progress in, in that direction, which yeah. is really like a cultural exciting. revolution is definitely energy for it. I can feel it. I feel it in our, in our young ones coming up, our young adults and them teaching their kids. And yeah, I think it's going to be beautiful. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and I know also tied to colonialism, uh, especially British colonialism, is the topic of prisons. And I know you have been very outspoken um, about that on your social media as well. So I was wondering if you could explain to our audience how the prison system is tied to the settler colonial system. And um, yeah, if, if you have some notions about abolition, that would also be amazing. Sure. Well, you know, as the late Moana Jackson, who's a Māori uh, legal scholar from Aotearoa, um, who reminds us that there is not a single Indigenous culture around the world who had this concept of prisons. You know, every Indigenous culture had a way of dealing with harm, but it wasn't just by, you know, locking them up in a, in a room. Um, and so all around the world, prisons they came with colonization as a way to control the population, whether it was the uh, settlers themselves who were often quite problematic people um, or, or had alcohol problems or were quite violent or cr uh, previous criminals, for example, um, or for the colonized population when they resisted. And this very much happened in Aotearoa. Entire families were thrown in prison for resisting um, having their land being stolen, uh, all sorts of things. And I would say the function of prisons hasn't changed since then. Um, it might be a little bit sneakier the way that it, they are used to oppress uh, Indigenous populations and poor people, but that's still their main function. Uh, in Aotearoa, we have some of the most shocking stats. Uh, we have 
the most incarcerated Indigenous women uh, per capita in the world. Um, half of our prison population is made up of Indigenous Māori, even though they only make up like 16% of the population. Um, and our prisons are filled with mentally ill people or people with addictions or people who have been abused themselves. If you apply all of these categories, every single one of every single person in prison will have one of those things. Um, so what we're doing is we're chucking our poor people, our victims of, of abuse, um, our people who are the most vulnerable in society in prison and we're hiding them because I think their existence highlights that the system is inherently broken. And you can't have these, you know, flaws being shown. So prison acts as a sort of, you know, uh, just a place to hide all the all these flaws. Um, because, yeah, they, they draw attention, you know. In a way, I, I think that um, criminals can be reframed to be thought of as resistors to the colonial system because they don't fit this mold. It's clear that they don't fit this mold because this mold is inherently broken. Um, and yeah, of course, people will always say, but harm will always be done. And that's true. You know, there will always be some people who cause harm in society. But if you remove those institutional causes of crime, so if you remove inequality by destroying capitalism, if you uh, remove um, the barriers of colonization by returning land, community, and the health of environment to indigenous people. Um, and yeah, if you eradicate poverty, if you change regulations with the drug laws and so on, and, oh, if you, if you ban weapons, you know, why are we still selling guns? You know, it's, it's ridiculous to be going after poor people who use guns and not the gun manufacturers in the first place, right? The whole system, the whole prison industrial complex is um, create, created to target the um, visible street crimes on that level. Um, but the biggest criminals are, of course, the billionaires who are impoverishing the world or, you know, just straight up war criminals like the Queen, who everyone was remembering and celebrating today. May she rest in peace. Um, her, George Bush, you know, the, the biggest criminals in the world, they're celebrated, they're revered. And yet, you know, you have a poor child who breaks into a shop uh, because they who knows what their circumstances are. And they, they end up with, you know, their life being destroyed. Um, and often prison destroys people's lives. Um, another shocking statistic, just because I can't leave this one out, a third of our children and youth in state care, so that's when the state takes them and rips them out of their families, a third of those children end up in prison. So, you know, we have pretty much pipelines. That's what they call them. They call them pipelines to, to prison. Uh, so we know they don't work. We know they target Indigenous and poor people. Uh, and it's time that, yeah, that we, we really ramped up this uh, conversation about abolishing prison, which can sound scary to some people, but abolishing prison just means coming up with something new altogether. We're abolishing them because there's no tweaking it. You know, you can't just tweak a dungeon and make it better. We need to completely rethink the way that we deal with harm. And, and yeah, we're going to need to rethink everything in order to do that because it's it's um it's part of that colonial structure. It's deeply intertwined with every single other thing in the colonial structure. So yeah, very hard to untangle, but it's a conversation we need to have.
Totoko. It's like uh, we almost need a different word, maybe. Like abolish prisons is maybe it's a bit scary, you know. Like we need like revolutionize prisons or something, you know. Yeah. I think that's what people get scared. They think, oh, you're just going to close all the all the prisons, shut them down, and then criminals are going to be running around everywhere, as if you know this plan isn't going to come along with also introducing um, harm reduction strategies throughout society and support systems. Um, but yeah, it's a scary topic for a lot of people, and we're hoping with some of the content that we create that it can just you know spark these conversations for people because having these conversations is the most important part to finding a solution mm -hmm. well thank you very very much for that conversation i really really enjoyed it and i hope our audience did too um and on that ending note on that final note i would like to ask you two questions uh first one is how can people who are listening to this who feel empowered by your words who want to take action if they live in a settled colonial state um, in solidarity with indigenous people and also in general, what can people from privileged backgrounds do um, to kind of help that uh, cultural reset that will involve everything that we talked about today? What can someone do? Be self-aware, be self-aware, know where you're coming from, uh, look at the systems that you're comfortably living under and, and try and imagine them from someone else's perspective. Um, but yeah, if, if you're someone who has the ability and who's motivated, the first thing I'd probably say is, you know, look after your health. That's the most important thing. If we can look after ourselves and keep ourselves happy and then also stay self-aware at the same time, then that's the best position for us in terms of um, working towards any form of positive change. Uh, yeah, center indigenous voices, um, try and share their work, try and read their work, you know, pretty much what Chris said. Like, yeah, but, like, but actually learn about it, mm -hmm. you know, like it's not just about sharing someone's content or, you know, try within yourselves to be open-minded and learn about different cultures, alternative perspectives, you know, it's not just about showing up and being present, it's, it's actually putting in the work to genuinely try and find benefits uh, and things that you resonate with in alternative spaces, different spaces that you wouldn't normally come across because of your system, which is so dominated by the norm, you know, we have to try our hardest to get outside of our bubble uh, and learn about alternative perspectives and try and find ways to connect with them. Thank you. And my second and final question is, where can people follow you and how can they support your work? Uh, yep, so you can find us on our website, which is all.org.nz, A-L-L.org.nz. <laughs> O-R-G, yep. Um, and yeah, we're on all of the socials. Um, you can donate to us. We are pub, uh, funded by public supporters. Um, and yeah, we're, we're hopefully going to try and apply to some government funding and, and some funding from other places. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep everyone posted. But for now, we are being funded by people who donate. Um, yeah, and thank you all so much for everyone that's been supporting us. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Oh, I just want to say, kia ora. Thank you for inviting us onto the uh, podcast. Have a chat. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Oh, no, please. I'm just incredibly grateful to both of you, Sam and Chris, for this really um, mind-blowing conversation. I think the work you're doing is amazing. And I personally admire Aotearoa Liberation League. 
So please, everyone who's listening to us, go and donate. Um, they are um, racialized and indigenous people who are putting in this work um, instead of dedicating their lives to other purposes. They don't have an obligation to do this. They, they're choosing to do it for our common good and the progress of, of our society. So please consider them in your donations. Um, and yeah, I hope you continue producing such amazing content and enlightening so many people. Thank you so much for, the, for the, your presence here today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks no everyone my, for listening. No order, Mike. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you.